Hello and welcome to the Tizzy Wire podcast, episode eight. Thanks for coming back today. I really appreciate you guys tuning in and listening to another spiel of what's in my brain. And luckily this time, you guys won't have to just listen to my brain because we have guests. We have guests. Finally, it's not just me talking into the microphone, having it just be me. So, okay, I would like to introduce you to two people that I've known for a very long time, one of which is family. And we would like to introduce you guys and hear all of their creative projects that they are doing right now, their evolution. And they are actually releasing and have released a podcast themselves. So I hope you guys will tune into that once you learn a little bit more about it, especially if you are into the whole radio play scene. Okay, uh, without further ado, welcome Ani and HK. Hi. <laughs> hey, this is so rad. Thanks so much for having us. I know. I think it's just awesome that you guys like traveled out here from like, where are you guys living now out there? Bed-Stuy. Yeah. Brooklyn. Bro- yeah. For yep. those of you who don't know what that means. <laughs> yeah. They hiked out here into like New Jersey. So that is such a pain in the butt. We can never get people to come out here. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> and any excuse to get out of New York, honestly, is yeah. great for us. Yeah. Right. There's I like know. actual trees here and Lots sky. Lots of trees. Yeah. And ticks. Watch out for ticks. My daughter just got a tick like the other day and it was absolutely terrifying. (laughs) I've been missing parasites in New York City. So Right. Uh, New York City is kind of Yeah, that's fair. Okay. (laughs) Right. And you're like originally from Massachusetts, right? So you know all about ticks. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I know. But I mean, I really appreciate you guys coming out here because I had those technical difficulties Mm -hmm. with the Skype platforms so doing it in person i'm hoping that we can save on any of those issues for this one because we can always redo it since you guys are here awesome so i wanted to talk to you guys a little bit i'm going to move the cat from my (laughs) notes um i wanted to talk to you guys a little bit about what you guys are making right now you guys are working on a podcast Mm -hmm. called a world where and you have one episode out right now. Mm-hmm. And I listened to it, and it was awesome. Thank <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for listening. I loved the sound effects in it, and I loved the story. It was really well kind of encapsulated. Um, I don't want to give away what actually happens in, in it because it's kind of an unfolding mystery. Mm-hmm. How many episodes are you guys prepared to, like, release how is i we only have one right now i'm like dying i want to hear the rest of it (laughs) so we released the first episode augmentation last month as a little bit of a teaser kind of to gauge interest and see if we could drum up some excitement for the rest of the season and our plan right now is to release an eight episode first season um towards the end of september it's going to be one big drop so it can be binge listened to oh that's awesome so are they all going to be of the same theme Mm -hmm. yeah So basically the way we talk about it is um, if you think about sci-fi being about anxiety, which I very much think it is, um, and then the the various um, sci-fi anthology series of like short stories, we think of ourselves as kind of descendants of the Twilight Zone, which was about baby boomer anxieties, you know, um, the Cold War um, being the major one, you know, radiation, there's all sorts of aliens and that kind of thing. And then more recently, um, there's Black Mirror, which is right. a, very much about Gen X fears, we think of. So uh, largely being outpaced by technology and kind of numbed by social media. Um, both of those things are not really things 
our generation cares about that much. It's not really things where, because social media is... Our generation being quote-unquote millennials. Millennials, <laughs> right. yeah. We're right smack dab in the middle of... I'll stop hitting my thigh. <laughs> <laughs> You're um, fine. Is uh, we're, yeah, we're smack dab in the middle maybe uh, to the later generation of millennials. And what we're anxious about is the fact that when we become baby boomer age, we're not going to have a planet. We're going to have um, all of our jobs taken away by robots and uh, that we're going to understand the human brain so much that you can kind of alter anything about your personality and the way you operate. Um, and the power of those things being in the hands of the wrong people. Right. Right. Uh, a big theme of we we kind of are the next and this is true of augmentation and it's going to be true of all eight episodes is basically they're bordering on political agitprop um we have kind of we're taking a Bertolt Brecht approach to it which is basically um for those of you who are not um theater nerds like we are um Brecht the idea is you should be aware that you're listening to a story. You shouldn't be like suckered into your suspension of disbelief. You actually should not suspend your disbelief. You should be like looking at this story from the outside and saying, how does this relate to me as a person? How does this relate to the injustices I see in my life? And I also think that we, while that is like the external structure and it's kind of these fantastical large things that we want you to feel implicated in, we want you to feel complicit in the structures a lot of the way but the actual style with which that we tell the stories is by placing you smack dab in the head of the protagonist right and that's a sound design thing so i am the in terms of our roles i'm the uh sound designer the composer and the writer um should have said writer first um (laughs) and then hk is the director so they work with actors a lot by the way for uh lack of confusion purposes, I use the pronoun she, and they use the pronoun they. I use the pronoun they. HK uses the pronoun they. Um, So they are the director. They work with the actors mostly, um, and uh, they also do a lot of the um, promotion, the networking, the talking to humans, which is not something I'm amazing at. I'm much better at sitting in my room and fiddling with my uh, ring modulators and my filters and things like that. And I'm very good at coming in after they've after she spent like six or eight hours uh, inside of it and looking at it and saying, that's crap, that's crap, that's good, yeah. take that part out, make that part quieter, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it works. Yeah. Pretty well. It does. And um, so what I was getting at is, as the sound designer, what my goal is, is we mix the show as though you are in the head of the main character. And in augmentation, what happens is um, this woman uh, who's a depressed jingle writer um, has her new rich husband pay for augmentation for her personality, which is like Mm. uh, a plastic surgery clinic, but it's in a world where um, brain surgery is easy enough and understood enough that you can just kind of go into a clinic and get your head drilled into yeah. and then things are uh you know uh, altered subtly um but of course um when yeah. i say i don't think we need to tell them everything that yeah happens. yeah but basically yeah, exactly what i'm saying oh okay uh, <laughs> but there's a part where 
her head is drilled into and you hear that from the inside is the idea ah, because that's what we want to do interesting that's what we want to do is literally and figuratively get inside the head of the audience so that's why we picked that one as the first episode oh, um, cool. because we want to establish that you are that your ears are the main character's ears. We also chose this as our first episode because of the cultural moment we're in right now in regard to things like Me Too. Um, we think that it examines gender in a, ver- in a very specific and relevant way right now that the public discourse would, this would add to it and yeah. definitely picks up on a lot of things that we, that as a culture we're just starting to critique mm-hmm. um, as far as the way that like, men treat women and women are told to... Uh, modulate their emotions and uh be a certain way to please other people to survive to be a good wife or whatever that means um to sand down your edges yeah that's a really good way of putting it and to be a more palatable person the the main character karen is definitely a woman who has internalized the critiques she's been getting her whole life to the point where she thinks they're true and she thinks they're her own. Yeah. I definitely got that in the in the story about how you, as it progresses, you learn more and more about who she is and the complications and how complex of a person she is and that she is not a perfect person. Mm-hmm. And is And what do you do with imperfect people when we're all that right. way? Yeah. Yeah, do you exactly. do you make them perfect or do you um, just come to terms with their imperfections? Mm-hmm. I would say is a theme. And I think that that's a yeah. theme of, of forever in a way. I think we've just dealt with it. I think <laughs> that's that a big that, question. You know, I think that that's something that is not just now, but timeless, because I think you look in the 1950s and you look at what the Twilight Zone was doing and they were kind of doing that same theme more on, in an aesthetic sense. They had right. definitely had episodes where, a few episodes where from an aesthetic, you did not look a certain way. You were not perfect in a certain way as far as your looks and changing that. I don't remember the name of the episode, but there's the, definitely one. Where, a lot of them, yeah. where yeah. it's like you don't see anybody's faces and they're like, this person is hideous. And then the bandages come off of her face and it's, she looks totally normal and everyone else are these weird pig creatures. Yeah, that one. That What's one. it called? There's another one too where she has to pick between a certain selection of predefined looks mm-hmm. and when she comes of age, she has to pick one of the predefined looks and to become that and everybody's mm-hmm. like, why wouldn't you want to look differently? And it changes her mind as well as it changes her look. Yeah. And she is forced into it at the end. There's an Alan Moore quote that I really like um, when he was talking about Watchmen, um, which was written in the 60s or something, in the distant, far-off year of like 1983 Mm -hmm. or something. And he says, um, when you're writing about the future, you're not actually writing about the future, you're writing about the present Mm -hmm. and um, the consequences of what the present could lead into. And if I were going to describe what we're aiming to do with a world where, I would say it's that. You know, we're not talking about aliens coming down. We're not talking about, you know, magic powers or something. We're talking about what are the consequences of things that are happening now? What are the consequences of uh, gender discrimination? What are the consequences of um, automation in the workforce is a big one. We have an episode where... Um, people make robot clones of themselves to like go on dates or um, you know fill out paperwork or go on business trips and so people are kind of divided up into um, 
a series of robot clones. Interesting. And yeah, it's that kind of thing. And I also think in the way that we're visualizing the future, I, I think the things that we do talk about are just are are center stage, obviously. But there's also a presence of the things that we don't actually talk about, which I think we'll explore later. And we're already expanding to planning season two and kind mm-hmm. of trying to figure out where things go. But my favorite thing about this world that Ani wrote is the things that are not problems. For example, gender is not like the misogyny exists, but being trans, being non-binary, the idea that there are more than two genders is this totally accepted thing and it's absolutely normal and people just introduce themselves and it's like, oh, hi, there's a character named um, Tam. So it's like, hi, I'm Tam, they, them. And then you just move on with the conversation. And it's more, it's a critique of the deeper things because we just want that all to be totally normal and not part of it. Well, and on the flip side of that, um, there's very little, if any, criticism of like Trump or Trump supporters Mm -hmm. in this. Um, Yeah, we're not interested in Well, our most frequent target are people who see themselves as socially progressive, honestly. Like, and you probably got this from um, Augmentation, is that the the piece of shit husband thinks he's being super helpful and like, oh, I just want to make things easier on you. I want to make our relationship easier. Um, And we get a little more political with that about like apathetic liberals who as soon as Trump isn't president anymore are going to be like, well, all our problems are solved. We can go back to, you know, if we get a female president, uh, that's going to be it. We're going to be, we're going to have one the diversity battle and of course no like trump is a symptom he's not the cause of things and when we get rid of him all the people who supported him are still going to be there and more importantly the people who stood by and um put the how do i want to say this i don't know (laughs) the the people who saw themselves as progressive without interrogating what the word progressive actually means, I think are the bigger problem because mm-hmm. those are the people who could really save us. You know, the, the people with pseudo progressive ideas who end up kind of being um, puppets of corporations or kind of stick their head in the sand when it comes to racial justice or, um, critiques of capitalism or uh or climate change they don't really do any you know don't they have trouble finding the root causes of climate change i think those are the people who you could actually wake up with a radio drama because it's not like a trump supporter is gonna listen to our podcast and go Mm -hmm. oh i i shouldn't support this guy anymore but maybe someone who considers themselves a progressive will see their failings Mm -hmm. in our work yeah and i think that I think that the biggest scary thing in our culture is is convenience. And I think convenience culture is actually what is going to take us down. And when I say convenience culture, I pretty much mean Jeff Bezos. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm terrified. And if you look at and, – and I think that the the cultural landscape is kind of starting to wake up to that. If you look at things like Sorry to Bother You – which um, is the new Boots Riley film, and it's fantastic. And it really uh, critiques that kind of, like, giant company that can apparently make everything really easy. And I was recently listening to another podcast that I really, really love called Bad With Money. And um, 
it's uh this young queer woman named gabby dunn and she's really great and she's really um really good at interrogating where she fits into the world and something that she mentioned that i just haven't been able to escape especially thinking about a world where is that in almost every sci-fi future dystopia there's like one big evil company that controls everything and we're looking we're staring down the barrel of that (laughs) but because it's so convenient no one cares Right. And that's why climate change is a thing. You know, I'm, I work in TV and film, and I'm really lucky to be working on a production right now where the producers are really invested in the environment and making it a sustainable production. But at every corner, we're getting resistance from every department because they're used to doing things in a way that's just like, this is the easiest way, it's the most efficient way, and it makes a ton of waste. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's st- we need to have a macro level of, of, of starting to curb that in order for things to change but everyone's just like no I, this is my way I do it it's easy it's convenient I can get it done and then I can go home but if we keep down that cycle we're going to end up with a world where air pollution is so bad you need to get oxygen from ATMs right. which is one of the stories that we tell and I love how I love the name a world where because I think it just it's very kind of has that old timey feeling of like an old radio play mm-hmm. and you can do so much with it. It doesn't have to be one story or one thought or or one concept. It really can diversify to so many different issues, which it sounds like you guys have so much you want to say. And I think that that is what's awesome about anybody's artistic medium is that unlike other, other ways that you can go about expressing something, art transforms it and adds the emotion to it and adds the context to it of the individual of the person so that you're not just getting thought points or talking points or something that's really snappy and easy to digest. You are getting the element and the essence of the person at the same time. How do you guys, I mean, this, so all eight episodes are done. No. Are they done? No, no. they They're are written. not. <laughs> they are. Every one has something about it that's done. <laughs> right? Like so we, have, we have a lot of the recording done. We're missing like three people basically um but you're the well you you know how much is done i don't (laughs) we're aiming for like a september 20 release date Uh and i'm gonna make that work but between now and mid-september i am going to lose my mind yeah um because these it takes so long i mean it takes so long to make this we can't afford an intern so no i dig it (laughs) yeah it's not really well and if I could riff a little bit, yeah. I hope you're going to edit some of this down. I feel like I'm talking so much. No, That's it's fine. Um, That's literally the point of why we're here. Yeah. You mentioned <laughs> that the name of World Wear has kind of an old-timey radio feel. Mm-hmm. And I like, I'm really glad that you said that because um, uh, two of my biggest inspirations are Orson Welles, who was, of course, of course did... Um, Mercury Theater of the Air, specifically, the most famous one is War of the Worlds, um, which War of the Worlds, a world where, kind of aimed for that kind of thing. And then the other one, who's a little bit less known, is Dirk Maggs, who made the original Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy radio series, which some people don't know, the radio series came before the book. Um, The first one and then Restaurant at the End of the Universe came out before even the first novel. And it was one of the first... It was the it was things like and this is my audio nerd the it was the first comedy to be broadcast in stereo it was one of the first radio pieces to record people in different rooms which we do um, and it's just both of those things are so tightly crafted I think the craft of radio drama 
not exclusively. I mean, we're in kind of a radio drama moment that's mm-hmm. kind of cool. I think it's uh, just about due for a golden age. That we would like to start if anyone's um, looking for that <laughs> Tinder. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's quite broken through in the way nonfiction podcasts have, but I think it is. I, I think it, I think it'll have its day. Maybe it's my so. own personal bias. Yeah. Because we actually, you know, you and I, we had initially started uh, radio podcasts on, on our original project, we which sure was did. sci-fi radio theater. Yeah. And there were a couple, we did a couple of different radio plays on that one, but you were in the first one, yes. which was not the, Hyper Nocturnal. The Bagua the Twee one. Box. Bagua, Bagua Twee Box, that's yes. right. It's so hard to say. It is. <laughs> it was cool, yeah. And I think, and that was actually before I had any inclination of doing radio drama. Um, Charles just asked me like, hey, I know you guys are, you're an actor. Do you want to? come and just lay down some some different character voices for this and I was like sure what I don't know it's a weird thing I'm an actor (laughs) and then I ended up listening to it and I was like just for me personally sound is probably the most engaging um, part of art for me sound and music and that kind of thing so hearing that being the exclusive mode of storytelling was really exciting and then it got me inspired to you know start making stuff in high school and college and then uh uh, ending up here, you know, and it started me down the road of being a sound designer in theater, which is a whole, I don't work in theater that much anymore, but that's a whole other thing. And I think that the other, what, and you, you started to touch on this, but the thing that's really exciting and challenging about radio drama is that, as you just said, you have to communicate everything through sound. Um, and we're both like Shakespeare trained actors kind of thing. Like we spent a lot of college, like picking apart all of that. And the thing about Shakespeare is that everything's in the words. There were never any stage directions. Um, Mm. Everything that was happening on stage is in the words. Like if someone leaves, they're like, goodbye, I am leaving stage now. (laughs) Um, So I think that that background definitely helped us find the devices necessary to tell the story without it feeling clunky. And I think that it, it allows a lot of freedom as well when everything is in the words because you know exactly what you're, what's happening at all times and you can just play within it, which I think is really exciting. But of course, the challenge of writing and designing it is to communicate all the information you need to without drawing a big neon circle around it and going, okay, I am entering a room now, mm-hmm. you know, like, yeah. oh, you're brandishing a knife at me. Oh, no. It's like you have to subtly incorporate it into the dialogue and the... Um, and the production and the sound design and the sound design which is of course it's that's not just true of uh of radio drama it's also true of and i'm sure you've experienced this it's also true of uh non-fiction podcasts because you do have to communicate everything through your voice and i think people are people have this cinematic idea of their lives right now and um people experience the world i think in a visual way and so they might find, I talk to people who can't get into podcasts because they have trouble identifying with someone who they can only hear and not see. Um, and that's the biggest challenge for me. And that's why we wanted to orient it in the character's head. Because mm-hmm. I think people have trouble um, sympathizing with characters or even nonfiction, just humans that they're hearing talk um, without seeing them. Yeah. And I, will, I wanted to talk about that a little bit too, because I really think that how the execution is where the art is because you can be very literal and and do exactly like what you're saying which is 
be as literal and as obvious as possible to but it doesn't convey the feeling that you're trying to convey so how do you want the atmosphere to be how do you want the music to be how do you want the tension and the emotion like you, you're hearing somebody's head getting drilled into do you just want that to be flat or do you want somebody to cringe as they're listening to it and be like oh god we we always want cringing yeah. <laughs> i had a lot of fun um with some watermelons and some uh turns out cabbage, cabbage. sounds like brains <laughs> who'd have thought but also hk i think Take your word for it <laughs> yeah it's really fun you should get a recorder and just point at some cabbages and <laughs> but i think dress reliever i feel like you should talk a little more about um because when we're di- when everything you know what I'm emotions and sounds that well thing. and um, just the specificity that you can get in radio oh, when you can just cut all the dialogue together it's so much fun I think you should yeah. Ani writes so many words too many words all the time um, <laughs> so we record and we have like a million million words that we don't need but I love the ability to be like take the oh my god from that line and the end of this other line and put them together and it's like this big beautiful Frankenstein. Um, because as a director, I kind of, I have, when I'm working with an actor, I have sort of one side of my head has a running track of what I want it to sound like. And then the other side is listening to what's happening and kind of marrying the two together. And the difference is where I'm like, okay, do this and this. But I, through all of my weird training stuff, have kind of come to this conclusion that acting is more about the mechanics of your voice and your body than anything else i think that like the emotional states can be achieved by like appropriate vowels um so i can have the time and the space in radio to work with an actor and be like i want you to emphasize this vowel this way and like use this kind of sound and it will fully communicate the breadth of emotion without having to to do all like the really like convoluted quote-unquote character work or it's 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 like mechanical in a way that's really exciting and radio gives me the space to do that and I think it works I think it works really well as opposed to having you know feelings and acting <laughs> I just whatever I think that feelings can be brought out in unexpected ways I don't think they have to be um I don't think it needs to be like the kind of what is it what's his name Strasbourg the kind of like Strasbourg-y sense memory where it's like I found a dead seagull on the beach once and it made me sad so I'm gonna think about this dead seagull for a sad scene whereas if the scene is written with a type of like tense vowel if you really like put your body in the way it is to make that sound and really feel what it feels it's like oh I'm tense because the sound is tense and and that's making me be tense when I perform like the keys are all there you don't have to do as much work as everyone says you do. And I, I just really like that I can play with that in radio and really get into the minutia of it. I think it's interesting because I think I'm getting from from two almost different sides of the brain from both of you. And maybe that creates like the balance. So we've got like the mechanical and everybody needs a good editor. So the mechanical editor side of things that can really hone things down. And then we've got like the initial muse coming from you, Ani. And together, I, I think that that's probably why it comes through so effectively because I loved how concise it was and I think it's so easy to go off the rails and do something that is so stream of consciousness and and have it be very long and less digestible I think maybe having the two of you with those different perspectives and you're probably experienced in tv as well it probably adds to it we got so lucky when we found each other it's it's (laughs) 
like every day I like I look at her and I'm like this just we just found each other one day in a rehearsal room and I was like okay I guess this is it yeah I guess this is what I've been looking for yeah. and it's it's really fun yeah we should yeah we should clarify that we're both very close frequent collaborators and also in a romantic partnership which that's a that's a fun uh balancing act that we do there. it is i really like it i don't know anything about that at all <laughs> yeah right <laughs> but i probably you know how did you guys what was the first project i know you guys met at nyu is mm-hmm. that right mm-hmm. we were both in the nyu theater program um and actually a lot of our creative process that we found with each other was unlearning everything we learned in school oh, I love not that. everything but uh So our first project that we worked together on was a play called Thud that I wrote, which I'm not sure if you saw. I think maybe you did. I think I did. did. Um, It was a play about a uh, basically kind of a cartoon character living in the real world. Um, And it was about a drug-addicted hospital clown who's incredibly clumsy. And he entertains a 14-year-old girl who um, he'll put on a show... Uh, of him getting hurt in exchange for her medication, which set the stage. Can we go back and can I explain it? Because I'm way better at explaining okay. the plots than you are. <laughs> it just takes so long. All right. Um, the first project we ever worked on together as exclusive collaborators, because we did, um, we we performed in a couple things together and we worked on the same projects, but the first time we ever were like, let's do this. Um, Ani asked me to direct her senior project at college, which was a play called Thud. Uh, and it's about a depressed hospital clown who is addicted to painkillers, who is tasked with cheering up a 15-year-old girl who is very angry and very malicious. And what they eventually discover is the only thing that makes her happy is watching him hurt himself. Hmm. And they develop a relationship where she pays him with her pain pills to hurt himself for his enter- for her enter- She pays him with her pain pills to hurt himself for her entertainment. Dark, man. So what, so what you just witnessed was them editing me, editing yeah. out half the words I just, that I said. It's just, I'm just better at that part. It's you fine. Are. You're you right. I can't do what you do no. at all. I can't. I, I have never in my life thought of an original story. I can't do it. I've tried so many times. I, it's, I don't have those muscles, but I can, I can digest and process the essence of someone else's work so quickly and I can be like okay this is how we can make it understandable to other people right. like that is my skill and I'm happy to be in my little box and that's totally cool and I have a brilliant crazy creative genius next oh, to me you. doing all the other stuff so I don't have to do it but everything that comes out of my brain is amorphous mm-hmm. everything that comes out of my brain has no shape and you I love shapes. S- you sculpt it into so a geometric figure that ends up having structure which to me is the most important part of anything creative is having an architecture to it. Right. Form and content. Yeah, I yeah. mean, What's-His-Face talks about that a lot. Right. Stephen Sondheim yeah. talks about form and structure a lot, or form and content yeah. and the relationship between the two. Does the form dictate the content or does the content dictate the form? And I think that we exist somewhere in the gray space between the two where they feed each other and cha- we, they very much challenge each other hmm. to, to find a point of tension where they can't exist without each other yeah 
get a little bit more Sorry. close to the mic. Oh, okay. It's like it's very, you, you guys I talk with my hands a lot, and I I'm like, <laughs> I need space to yeah. gesture, but it's a podcast, so I don't. And it's interesting, because you both have different timbres to your voice, so like when he's a little bit closer, it, it's a little bit louder, and you can be a little bit closer, because your voice is okay. a little softer. Let's, is this good? If yeah, we're, no, If good. we're in this position, mm-hmm. this is comfy. Yeah. Okay, cool. cool. It's comfy. We'll just stay here. Yeah. It's all about being comfy. It is it because sometimes it's about being uncomfortable i do uh-huh. like making people uncomfortable well, when you're they're here, very it's when we're here it's yeah comfortable, <laughs> as comfortable as that cat on the ottoman i know we definitely Keeping. look to make people uncomfortable with our work yeah well i think that work should be uncomfortable um <laughs> but i mean and speaking of that um so you two you guys are a unit bringing in other people outside of the unit sometimes can be a bit of a challenge especially if you're trying to make something you guys have a vision have you guys had challenges trying to get this thing off the ground? Um, meaning a world where just getting schedules, getting people to understand where you're coming from with the project. I mean, what kind of hurdles have you been jumping over to get this done? Well, we're really, really fortunate to have a plethora of talented actors at our disposal who we've managed to cultivate relationships with enough so that they will work for free for now. We are deeply against the practice of not paying actors it really bothers us we just don't have the ability to um and we're we're going to retroactively pay everyone when we can um so having this like group of very talented people at our disposal um who trust us is kind of made all the difference like we got really lucky with a lot of people who are like yeah we we want to work with you guys and we we trust your skill set so that's been pretty easy once we get them in the room but when you're not paying people it's very hard to get them in the room because they have no time so (laughs) that's really been the hardest thing and you can't necessarily expect them to always be I don't want to say reliable but you can't expect them to always make room for you around their paying projects I mean we have um, Brenda Dixit who stars in the first episode of Augmentation who is amazing is like my old roommate your old roommate <laughs> is traveling back and forth to India all the time to do these amazing things she's in a coke commercial that plays before some movies and like AMC or something oh no she was in a, the coca-cola commercial that played before fantastic beasts and where to find them mm-hmm. and I screamed yeah when wow. I saw it <laughs> but it's the kind of thing especially and it's mixed emotions as our friends become more successful because they're so talented we're so happy for them but when we're on the level that we're at, we have to negotiate between our needs as artists and their needs as people who need to make a living. Yeah, and, and so we've our original plan was to release this in March, you know, so, so you have to LOL. be a little flexible with the schedules. Yeah. So we are now releasing it in September. But we also kind of figured out it took us a little time to understand how we needed to approach things logistically because um, we have very different amounts of time at our disposal. I'm working like 60 hours a week Mm. um, in a production office um, and Ryder has more time at home than I do. So it's also been navigating like who's going to do what, where do my specific skills need to come into play outside of the recording studio um, and where where are we okay with there being an uneven time commitment and, and how do we kind of make those things up to each other? Incidentally, I just came out as a trans woman about two days ago. So they're still calling me writer because that's what I used to Oh my to God, go did by. I do that? Mm-hmm. We can re- I can re No, no, it. it's fine. I, I think it's cool because it's like, we were saying to Josie and Charles, 
excuse me, we were saying to Josie and Charles that you can't expect people to be perfect with your gender stuff all the time. I'm supposed to be perfect. Though, no, you're I'm not. Also trans. No, you're not. You have to leave room, and it's the same thing in art. You have to leave room for mistakes because mistakes help. I mean, if we didn't make catastrophic mistakes with you know working in theater, I don't think we would have the kind of creative relationship that we have now because we have that backlog of um, fuck ups. <laughs> and we can reference learning them. experiences yeah where we're like remember that learning experience remember how terrible that was we're not going to do that again <laughs> yeah those are kind of investments though every time i screw up even though if i spend all night crying about it it's like <laughs> that's a really great way of putting it it's not a mistake it's an investment in the quality of your later work and i think it also has to do with the attitude in the circles that we kind of were floating in right after college um because in entertainment specifically so many people get big young and we felt a lot of pressure to blow up immediately you know and when that didn't happen we were like shit what do we do (laughs) like this was we just assumed that everyone would love this and it would go viral and because like that's the world that we live in um and another thing that's amazing about radio is that it's just there now and it's not going to go away you know coming from theater we were really used to our art being transient and you know six weeks of working on something super intensely no sleep and then you break down the set it's gone and you're done and that's it it's never going to happen again but augmentation is on itunes and it's not going anywhere yeah that feels amazing yeah and it feels it feels like it's something that you can take and transform and take with you no matter where you are you don't Mm -hmm. have to deal with a certain stage or a certain setup. I think that that's fascinating that you started in theater because I have a lot of different people in my life that are in theater now or were in their past. And I think a lot of them sometimes feel stuck not knowing where to take it next because they don't have the hardware. And by uh, by hardware, I mean like a stage and a cast and equipment. (laughs) And money. Because you can't be an artist all the time and have money at your disposal unless you're really lucky yeah that was a big one of the reasons that we stepped away from theater was because what we saw were the only people regularly making work and getting their work produced were the people who didn't need to get day jobs and either their parents were bankrolling them or normally usually it was just their parents were bankrolling them Mm -hmm. and that's fine that doesn't mean that these people aren't talented and don't have something interesting to say but it just isn't a level playing field and then you also get to like if if Broadway is your whatever which it wasn't for us that was never really something we were interested in but you get to that tier where it's like the highest you can get look at the audiences and the audiences are the people who can afford to see those things and they're very homogenous and the content is extremely limited and that it has never been what we wanted to do with our art you know podcasting is free Mm-hmm. everyone can listen to this and everyone who makes podcasting agrees that it should be free and we want our art to be accessible right that's what is so oh i'm gonna get excited about this all right that's, that's what's so cool about <laughs> um pu- public radio which of course um podcasting the reason i think everyone agrees that it should be free should i back up the mic at all oh no actually okay, you're, cool. you're good um the reason everybody agrees that it should be free is because it's the descendant of public radio and public radio's whole thing is Um, This is a community thing where if you rely on this and you feel um, you feel drawn to kick in a couple bucks um, or if you have the means to, 
then you kick in a lot of money, which means that people who don't have the means can still access it. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, because so many um, podcasters came from the public radio world, you know, like Serial, This American Life, Gimlet, that kind of thing, they all came from that ethos. Um, It ends up, by nature, it has become an egalitarian form. And I feel that way about early radio drama. I think radio drama comes from the tradition of that where if you had a radio, you could sit there and it would just come this these stories would come into your house and and i think you know way before tv mm-hmm. um people uh learned that stories were not something that you had to break the bank for stories are a thing that came from people sitting around a campfire and just telling it because they enjoyed it mm-hmm. and i think um that's what draws us to radio especially because the themes of our plays are about um, social justice and mm-hmm. equity and uh, criticism of corporate hegemony, hegemonies, criticism of corporate hegemonies, um, and the fundamental inequality that is in our system. And by its very nature, radio and by extension podcasting breaks down those structures. Right. Mm-hmm. We could never tell these stories on Broadway ever because mm-hmm. any meaning behind them would be absolutely lost as soon as there's a barrier to entry mm-hmm. it would be completely hollow and be a, just a, a gesture at an idea and not any actual meaningful statement and i think what's what's cool about what you guys are doing and, and you talked about this briefly is that when you're you're in school especially if you're in art school and at some point i want to do a whole episode on just going to school for the arts. We got a lot Please. to say. I really, really, really want to Actually, do I have someone who you should interview for that. Really? Yeah. Because I seriously want, I might even do a series on it because I think it's so important. That because would... you, you talked about, you know, like, you come out, you, you go into it, you have to unlearn everything that you learn, and then you come out and you kind of have this great expectation, but no real direction because nobody really knows how to direct you. Right. Because it really does, if you have something to say, you have to kind of rediscover that and you almost can't unless you get very lucky lucky and you get picked up and even if you get picked up you kind of miss out on a great opportunity to discover what that inner voice is inside and what you want to say and what you want to bring to the world and what you're willing to sacrifice to do that and bring that to the world and the mm-hmm. vulnerability of that and the hardships you have to do to get to that point i think that that's an invaluable experience that school can't give you and once you get there and you start even if you're not making money at it the payoff of knowing that you've put something out there that is real to you is is the ultimate point Mm -hmm. and that's the idea of the podcast that i'm trying to do is bring it back to the work and understanding that art is work but that's kind of the point i think the world is filled with people who consider themselves gatekeepers and feel that oh I think the world is filled with people who consider themselves gatekeepers, and because they consider themselves gatekeepers, they feel that they can just squeeze as much money and labor out of you as they possibly can, and you will do it because you're working for exposure. And like they say in Oregon Trail, you can die of exposure. You know, exposure doesn't... Exposure doesn't... um, pay the bills. Exposure doesn't make your work better, really. Exposure is just, oh, I got to sit in a room silently with this vaguely important person in the arts. 
Um, and I think there's there needs to be a paradigm shift where we consider our work to have inherent worth. And then how do we translate that worth into not necessarily just money, but into um, the into eh, maybe just money. We we have to assi- well we have to well, assign value. As long as we live in a capitalistic system, the ultimate measuring stick will be money. Right. So for the sake of comprehension, right. Mm-hmm. I want to say value because I don't think value is necessarily just monetary. I think value can be emotional. But I think the most important thing is, you know, the way we as our society as it is now for good and bad assign value based on money and and labor and I think when people try and get free labor out of you or free work um, I think that's a major problem that podcasting because of the way the form is set up can help us um, change mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I think money I mean making money is that there's always going to be a need <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry no worries oh God. where we're as you can see, we're not at like the most sophisticated <laughs> setting. My daughter is starting to wake up, I'm sure, but um, uh, you know that's that's just part of the realism that we yeah. work in in this yeah. environment. Yeah, um, people. But oh my God, what was I going to say? Uh, I totally lost my. It was train of um, money value. You're saying something. Ah about. yes. So I mean, money can do a lot of things. Obviously, if you're a celebrity and you make a lot of money, you can buy lots of stuff. Um, and you can do a lot with that. You can go on trips. You can have experiences. But I think what is interesting when you make money based on the art and the art that you create, some people might get upset about the fact, oh, you're charging for, for something. But all of that is going to go back into the pool to create more. You need something to survive in this world. I mean... I know that some there there there's expenses even to podcasting. There are expenses. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not making any money on this podcast at all. <laughs> oh, same. No, 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 yeah, no. no. Um, but I think if there are ways to fuel, if you can, if there are ways to still have art available to people and also find some way to sustain it, I don't necessarily think that there's anything wrong with that as long as you keep adding value to the art that you're putting out there. I don't think there's anything wrong with it because we live in this world hi meow hi marco (laughs) well i don't think there's anything wrong with it simply because this is the bed that has been made for us we have to sleep in it we have to survive we have to pay rent so Mm -hmm. i think that if we're going to be handed this system i'm going to do it the way that i want to do it and the way that i need to do it to survive so there's nothing wrong with that at all um and I think that's why the public radio model works really well when it's like a donation-y kind of thing and the idea that we all carry each other because then there's a recognition of equity versus equality and like equity understanding that not everyone is starting from the same place but mm-hmm. understanding that there's value in having these things available for the people who couldn't necessarily meet a barrier for entry and then you can still pay your rent. And there's nothing wrong with equality. I mean, charging money and having everyone pay the same price is fine, I think. But I might push back a little bit against the idea that just charging money to um, get the expenses covered is the best way to do it. Because I think, you know, there are people with a billion dollars out there. And if someone with a billion dollars likes my podcast, and if someone who's as broke as me likes my podcast, um, I would rather the billion dollar person pay for it and 
the person as broke as me get it for free. And I think that's actually a way, um, I think it's, it's more complicated than just using one public radio model or something. It, I think it really has to be, we as a society have to come to the understanding that people with more wealth should pay more as opposed to where we're at right now, which is, you know, if you buy something in bulk, you pay less for it. If you have more money, you can afford to pay less taxes. Um, and I think that's true of art. It's like a $60 Broadway ticket means a lot more to me than it does to Jeff Bezos, but Jeff Bezos should probably be paying $600 for that ticket. And I think art can, can and should, and is not necessarily right now in this world, but can and should be a way of fostering financial and class equity in this world. Mm -hmm. That was a very long-winded way of saying <laughs> that rich people should pay more and poor people should pay less. $600 is still nothing to Jeff Bezos. <laughs> I don't know why this is so about him, but isn't everything well, we do? It, it's about him because something I say when I'm pitching the podcast is I am way more scared of Jeff Bezos than I am of Donald Trump. I think Donald Trump is going to fizzle and disappear. I think Jeff Bezos, if we're not careful, could really set the... Um, the moral principles of where we go in the future, which I think are very skewed. I think it's interesting that you, like talking about the different ways of, and different thought process about funding, funding, mon uh, funding your projects or how that should work, because I feel like every single person I talk to has a different perspective on yeah. it. And I think that adds to the discussion on art because it really is so so unique to how the individual wants to express their art and how they want to fund it and there are so many ways to come about it i think that the that the central point that i like to bring into this podcast is to talk about how many different perspectives there are not just in the creating of art but funding it how do you sustain it how you bring new people into it because i don't I genuinely don't think there's one business model or a model or any singular way to get it done as long as we have the freedom to be able to get it done the way that works mm -hmm. for us all. One, of, I, oh, yeah. <laughs> one of the biggest fights we have is whether or not if we get to the level, we should have advertisements. Yeah, we fight about that all the time. And, and if we do, would they be... Um, do we want to do more of a native advertising thing where we pull it into the world and kind of poke fun at it? Or do we want to have something like totally different that's like, this was brought to you by Blue Apron, Blue Apron, blah, 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 blah. They're not paying us. We shouldn't have said their name. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> I know, and I've been thinking about getting Blue Apron someday. Yeah. <laughs> we'll know it's we delicious. made it. Very bad for the environment. Very wasteful. Mm -hmm. They say it's easy to recycle things, but you have to like go to a center. It's a pain in the butt. Let's see. Okay, this is my problem. If we're <laughs> Convenience. What if Convenience I, culture. What if I write a play about blue apron in the future where they you know you get meal kits for i don't know if there's if all of your meal kits are just like protein packets that you mix together or something what if i want to criticize blue apron i know i was just thinking that but <laughs> what if i want to criticize blue apron but blue apron is sponsoring us fair use I think no it's not they don't have to sponsor us if we if we criticize them right. they could pull it and then that could damage well, our work and there are there are also um more established podcast companies that shall not be named that do a lot of work in conjunction with large companies that have like podcasts presented by 
I'm going to pick one, a name that's not actually being used. Target. I don't think Target has a podcast yet. But if Target is making your podcast, your podcast is always going to present Target in a good light. Right. That's yeah. just what it is. And I think if you are making work that is specifically um, commissioned and presented by one corporation, one brand, then you are sacrificing something. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily the end of the world. It doesn't necessarily mean your art isn't valid, but you are sacrificing something about the work that you're making. And you're also endorsing. As soon right. as my voice says that company's name, I'm endorsing it. And that means that I am taking on responsibility for the values of that company in addition to my own. You know, I, am, I, am, I have said that these people can have their name affiliated with us and therefore everything that they stand for and put out into the world, I have to be okay with. I think it's, I think it's a, I think that's an ongoing challenge that's been there for a while with art. It's just now it's just squared in terms of how many people are creating content, how much advertisers are competing to get visibility. And it, it's a challenge, I think, unless you have an income source that doesn't require you to have advertisers. I think every podcaster, every person that's on YouTube has to start to wonder about that. I don't know if there's a good answer. Yeah, I mean, I'm not opposed to doing ads, if any advertisers are listening. Um, (laughs) I'm opposed. Yeah, so this is like our fundamental left brain, right brain situation, as Mm -hmm. you were saying before, we're two halves of one human, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, Because we gotta pay rent, and I wanna pay our actors. It's more so that I wanna pay our actors more than anything. Like if I, if a company comes along and can, can, give me the money to give everyone $500 for the work that they did, I'm fine with putting them on the air with us. I am. And I think it's worth it because then it would be, it it would be a gesture towards the integrity of our performers and, and recognizing that their skill set is incredibly valuable. And that's what's important to me. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's like a personal value system for me is I am very invested in caretaking for people in my life I really like to get my friends jobs I really like to cook for my friends and I think that if I'm going to be working with my friends in this capacity I want to set the precedent for respecting their work Mm -hmm. and giving them the the ability to pay rent buy food whatever is the most accepted way to do that I suppose but also if other people are going to pay I mean I see what I see what people make in tv shows right like so I know like the, the the SAG base base rate is like a, it's like SAG daily scale plus 10% ends up being like $1,083 mm-hmm. for a day of work, right? Yeah. That's how much an actor gets to do like a 12-hour day on set. And I would really like to be able to give my friends that right. because they're really good. And that's what it is. And that's like, a, a, and that was a number come to by through collective bargaining and through unions and through a lot of work. Yeah, remember those? Yeah. Well, I deal with them every day. Speaking of Jeff Bezos. <laughs> yeah, seriously. But um, to me, that's a priority. And it, if if achieving that goal means endorsing a meal kit company, I'm okay with that as long as the meal kit company isn't, like, murdering orphans. Yeah. You know? But you don't know. Blue I apron. don't. I don't know. Blue Apron could be murdering orphans. What if they're murdering <laughs> children with parents? I don't mean to get no. you sued, Jesse. <laughs> it, may, it, it makes perfect sense, by the way, that you two would have these viewpoints we're so cliche like every cliche you could come it's just it's we fight all the time about like whether or not like an artist is separable from their work Mm -hmm. like everything you'd think that we have opinions on we do and are the exact opposite but also (laughs) this is all so this is all hypothetical like Mm -hmm. no one wants to give us money right now but something that isn't hypothetical 
So we also fight about whether we should copyright our work. Because I, don't sigh, I am a big believer in Creative Commons licensing. Interesting. Which, short version, is, um, yeah. it's like public radio. It's not official. It's not legal. It's just a, an, a community of artists has decided we're going to license this way. So you can either do, like, free, whatever, everybody use it, remix it, do whatever you want. Or you mm -hmm. can do, like, hey, guys, I want you to attribute this to me, and I would rather you not make money off of it. And we'll just all agree to do that instead of, you know, enshrining it in law. Mm -hmm. um, Which I think is dumb because mm -hmm. there are giant cor corporations and companies who like entertainment companies who can see our uncopyrighted work really like the idea and then ask us to do it and we could say no and they'll say okay well fuck you we're gonna do it anyway because you don't have it copyrighted that, that happened doesn't, that it, doesn't affect my work though well it does because then our work will be overshadowed and we will never be able to achieve like any notoriety but that could happen anyway i don't have any control over you how do much... if you copyright it then they can't take it from oh, you <laughs> they're gonna find a way though I think, you know, I, I was really interested in copyright law for a long time because I went to school for music business, so I got really into it. For a while, I thought, oh, maybe I'll be a copyright lawyer because that's sexy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that I get where both of you guys are coming from on it because on one hand, you, don't, you want to be able to protect the baby that you've created, but you also want to provide that same license and openness to a larger community and i think it's just and the funding it goes along the same lines yeah. of what you want from a from the standpoint of being able to fund actors and be able to keep it within sag and then you ani don't want to like lose creative control right you but don't also, want to lose that if we copyright it we can choose to let people use our work without having to deal with the copyright stuff but it means that they can't without our permission i don't see anything wrong with that <laughs> i do it's just pragmatism versus idealism i mean it's yours probably work better in the real world and mine i hope work better in the bright future that we want to build yeah, but the bright future that you wrote about no but yeah <laughs> well maybe but maybe i should maybe i should um uh defer to yours for now just because we want to build this thing in the real world and um maybe if i stick to my idealistic principles the whole time you know i can be idealistic all i want in my room but then i go out of my room and the world is still the way the world is i don't i'm open to that so what you're saying is that i'm right not necessarily i'm saying there are valid an val <laughs> <laughs> uh, no but also i'm i'm always supposed to say they're right about everything i usually am this is true you usually are <laughs> the record anyway this is the process of being a partnership in more ways than one it as is. you're doing cre the creative process. And I think it's why we make good work. It's so fun. We we talk so much. It's like we... I know, it's excruciating. We, we <laughs> just pick apart every single thing that we possibly can and try and find the essence of what everything is. And no matter what, when we get to that essence, we're all, we always have different opinions on it. <laughs> and it's like, it's like two electrons. Like mm -hmm. it's just never gonna, they're never gonna touch each other. Talking about quarks. But, but that's also okay. electrons because they're the same. 
anyway whatever <laughs> i'm not a scientist but yeah. what what i was gonna bring it into is the marxian dialectic which is where you have a thesis and you have an antithesis and then they become a synthesis when they combine with each other and i think that's what's that's what excites me about our work, particularly the work that we're making now, is it feels dynamic. It feels like it's not just saying one didactic thing where it's like hitting you over the head with, this is our message about the future, you know, be scared of the bees dying or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's like we have these, we, we, I pride myself, and I think you do too, on always complicating the thing. That is what I was going to say. Yeah, on <laughs> establishing the thing and then people get comfortable in the thing and suddenly you throw a wrench into that thing and it's totally turned on its head. And I think it comes from an interesting place of being people with anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I, I Sometimes I say casually that like I can't be friends with people who aren't deeply self-aware, um, but I also think that that self-awareness comes from anxiety in mm -hmm. some ways. Um, we both have a lot of anxiety and like our own fun little disorders that we navigate um which i think a lot of artists do um but we've managed to channel these the impulse of self-critique into artistic critique into cultural critique into critiquing our place in the world and understanding that there are stories that we wouldn't naturally tell because we have certain privileges you know we, there are there are we could very easily coast through on like uh, simpler ideas but those are those types of stories have never been very exciting to us yeah. and if we can make ourselves and people like us uncomfortable then i think we're doing something right yeah. it all goes back to anxiety i think well, yeah anxiety is how we started the conversation yeah as far as uh, oh, that was nice. anxiety yeah. you know being like in that. science fiction and i think you're right on that I, I think that a lot of science fiction is based in some sort of anxiety or at least complexity. Um, I know I'm a Star Trek fan myself, yeah. so I uh, I think a lot about that and the times that that show was happening in the 60s. I know it's still continuing, but I always think back at the 60s and where and the perspective that Gene Roddenberry was bringing into the table and into the conversation. I think it's really cool nowadays where we have so many different mediums to bring that same level of expression in this day where everyone is being honest about the anxiety that they're feeling. Mm -hmm. It's a very anxious time. And I think that no matter what perspective you're coming from, from what political landscape that you're in, that there is that medium for you to express what you want to put out there. And there is an audience for it. And there's a place to, a mm -hmm. way to foster it. And I think that if we can all treat each other kindly as artists, wherever we're coming from, I think that that builds the dialogue and that builds the possibilities. And we can, we can all learn from each other in this kind of environment. And there's a whole other conversation to be had about mental illness. There's a whole other conversation to be had about mental illness and the artistic practice mm -hmm. because there's this whole myth of the crazy artist who's Jackson Pollock and who sits in his room, you know, just like, uh, it won't work. I have all these crazy times. But of course, mental illness doesn't help you make art. It actually really hinders your art. And art can be a form of self-care and um, alleviating of some of that. Like I feel way less anxious when I finish writing something and I see my anxiety 
put out into the world and see people identifying with it and understanding it and saying, I share those fears. Mm-hmm. It's the best antidepressant. Uh, <laughs> outside of actual antidepressants. antidepressants work pretty well too <laughs> but, but yeah we we have never been interested in the starving artist model mm-hmm. like that that like romanticism of artists and of like the artistic experience it, it's just never really been exciting to me because we've over since we graduated from college three years ago um we've seen people lean into that you know we've seen a lot of our community be like i'm an artist and i can't be tied down and i'm like that's cool but like i really like having a nice vacuum cleaner um (laughs) so i want one (laughs) i I would like a dyson vacuum cleaner one day so i'm gonna find a way to do both oh my god we could be sponsored by dyson it was on sale on groupon last week for 180 dollars, and i really almost bought it and i didn't and i'm very upset (laughs) (laughs) i think it's so easy to I know that that was part of my journey for the last 10 years of feeling like I needed, in order to be an artist, I needed to fit into some sort of conformed, pre-designed identity. And there's a look that goes with it. There's a way of speaking that goes into it. There is this whole model. And it's like not being the artist and making the art isn't enough. It is you have to embody this whole image that comes with it. And I think you can get so caught up in trying to embody that you can lose your sight of what your message is you can lose sight of who you are and almost stop your art in the process mm-hmm. yeah it's deeply ironic that that there's such a specific mold that artists are supposed to fit into when it's in theory about counterculture and about critiquing the culture and if you are like oh this is who i have to be then you're not doing the thing that you want to do mm-hmm. yeah. And counterculture, I mean, I think that there's other ways to look at art, too, besides besides that. I know for for me, there's there there's um, can be uh, there can be like an exploration on your inner workings of your faith or lack thereof. And where does I think that it comes down to meaning and your sense of meaning and what gives you meaning as a person. And that inspiration can come from so many walks of life. Mm-hmm down to maybe you get your meaning just from being in one room and you never have to explore the world or it can be the complete opposite and you are constantly on the road in Paris in Hong Kong and that's where that meaning comes from I think that as long as we are bringing the the meaning and I think that you know internally when that is happening when there's that link because I think on the other side of it you see yourself and you like that reflection. And I think that that's where it all starts feeling real and you don't start falling into pre-designed dialogue on something. Because I think it's so easy to get caught up in expectations of what any one group might want you to be. It's Culture can mean so many different things, but the sense of who you are and what you want to become just for you and what you want to put into this world because at the end of the day, we all die, and yeah. it's all gone. <laughs> it's like you want to, you want to at the end of your last days, we have our memories. We lose all of our ability to hold things, to see, to hear. What are we going to experience when we are 90 years old, hopefully, mm-hmm. and we have our memories to live on? We shouldn't really – I have this idea that, like, being nostalgic at 30 – 
sometimes I slip into it and I know from personal experience, but it's such a waste of time. We have so much life to live. We were talking about this. So we're 25 and we're just hitting the age where we can be nostalgic because I think nostalgia can kick in around like a decade after the thing happens. And now suddenly there's all this stuff that's being nostalgic. You know, there's a BoJack Horseman season where all the <laughs> jokes are about 2007 and how different things were back then. And we get that. And we get it. And in the way that we don't get jokes about the 80s or 90s and stuff. So Yeah, we, we discovered our first big nostalgia moment was when we were watching So You Think You Can Dance recently. Oh my God. And it's so mid-aughts. Yeah. It's so fabulous like the fedoras the asymmetrical dresses the music style like every steampunk tim burton yeah like (laughs) hey there delilah like all of that it's just like wow yeah what a time we had no idea we were so naive and like it's it's so easy to get lost in yeah so easy but you have to root yourself in the time that you're in yeah it's you you have to and that's bringing it back to sci-fi sci-fi good sci-fi is not about what's going to happen in the future it's about what's happening in the present and what we can do about it yeah and what that kind of means for the future as we are now i think in a way it's kind of i love thinking about science fiction because i just feel like the flavor of it changes from every generation how it feels when you're watching it not just from the production value but just the kinds of stories that they're telling yeah i think that what you guys the story that you guys were telling really is something for everybody because nobody wants especially that first episode because i know we don't have the rest yet yeah it's coming (laughs) but the idea of somebody tampering with your mind to create some other purpose or perfection in somebody else's eyes changing you for who you are that can go across anybody no matter where you are and we're also in the camp that there are only 10 stories really in the world um and and we explore them we we cannibalize them in a lot of ways but this is another version of the stepford wife story right we see that story mm-hmm. so many times in our culture and this is this is a side of it that we haven't seen before and and i think that it has a bit more agency involved than some of the other ones that we've seen and I think what's exciting about that, I think that we, we keep telling stories for a reason. And to, to bring back Shakespeare, I say that, like, why are we still doing Hamlet? Right? We get it. We know what happens. Mm-hmm. But we're still doing Hamlet because every time we do it with a different cast, we do it with a different place, we do it with a different idea around it. So we still have stuff to gain from these stories. So if we look at something like Augmentation, which explores this, um, like, misogynistic, constructed woman idea... I think it forces us to step back and say, like, why is this story relevant right now? And it's relevant for a plethora of reasons. I think someone can listen to that story and and see so much of the world that we currently live in. And hopefully it can give people some tools to undo those things. If I can say something that is um, self-consciously pulling everything together. Um, The podcast is called A World Where... But the world where is this world. The world where is our world. And I think that's ultimately what we're trying to do. Don't give me that face. That's so corny. You don't have to use that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't condone that message. <laughs> I, but I do love the name A World Where because I'm surprised nobody has like 
Yeah, same. Swap right. that out. I was surprised we got the domain name. We found one really shitty Instagram that was using it for like inspirational memes, but yeah. there were only like two posts and they were trash. Yeah. yeah. But if it's because we can't describe a, one of the plays without saying, okay, it takes place in a world where, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Ah. Yeah. This has been, this is such a great conversation, man. I know. Yeah, this is cool. I love this. Would love to talk to you about theater school sometime. Oh yeah. my God. So many opinions. I've been on, I actually talked about it on a panel once. Well, and you really? went to music school, right? I did go to music school. What and was I've that talked, like? Uh, I feel like that's a whole other yeah, totally. like, whole podcast. Art school is its own thing. Art school, people who've gone to school for literature, I, I hear the same story. We talk about stories that are ubiquitous across time. I think it's, an example of that especially in the in the land of like student debt it adds oh. like a whole other extra element to that um and i just that's what i mean i feel like it's its own separate category mm-hmm. it was going to be the first episode of the podcast and then i realized i can't do that episode by myself because somebody's going to get angry and i need to have multiple perspectives round table <laughs> yeah, on this so. because i've talked to some people who say that they would have had it no other way that's like that's the thing that that made it for them and i've had other people say it is what destroyed them mm-hmm. i've heard walks of life in between and i just think it's it would be a better conversation for people who are on who are on all different sides of that yeah. i need more microphones well it also it also we'll bring we'll bring, we'll bring ours over um <laughs> It also, there's a lot of intersections that come into play there because um, so the person I think that you should interview for is um, our friend Jesse, and she um, is disabled. She uses a wheelchair, and her experience of acting school has a lot of, we, we went to the same school. We had a lot of similar experiences as far as um, failed pedagogy and, and the, the way that NYU's acting program is structured that's complicated, but because of her disability, it adds a whole other layer of complication mm-hmm. that most people wouldn't even consider in there and then and we also saw that similar thing with our friends of color who went to school because there are certain you know roles and there's a lot of constrictions around that and it 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 becomes so much more complicated than you even realize because everyone comes into it with such a specific background and such a specific life and art is so personal Mm -hmm. how do you teach art to all of these people who are so different Mm -hmm. and that's why i with this podcast specifically i am completely with the exception of certain specific topics but i want to remove myself as much as possible and allow the dialogue that's coming from people like you to speak for itself because i don't want to assume that i have all of the answers that my perspective is right because when it comes to art that doesn't really exist i feel like everybody has a different perspective everybody's own truth is themselves and the more that we try to conform and fit into these little boxes, that is what kills creativity. Mm-hmm. And we need to, where, wherever we feel like we fit, whether that's in, in a particular community or even outside of all communities, wherever that seems real to us and we know when we're being real with ourselves, that is where we need to be cultivating and creating something. And mm-hmm. some people, that's school. Some people... It is not school. Mm-hmm. It is like the workforce. And it, some people, it, it can be like being a, a single mom or, or, or being a stay-at-home mom. It could be any number of environments that you can put yourself in where that transforms. Yeah. But I want to open up that dialogue because I'm here to learn as much as anybody else. 
as long as we're all listening to each other. Learning well, is the best. Yeah. And to bring it back to our own experience, because we were talking about the experience of being disabled or a person of color, we know nothing about that. But we do know about being trans and being out trans people. You know, you wouldn't know it from my voice, but I am a woman. And um, in school, literally a teacher assigned me a character who was described in the script as a tranny hooker. Yeah. And like... And then you look at the real world, and it's, of course, true there. I mean, you have Eddie Redmayne playing a trans woman. You have Jeffrey Tambor playing a trans woman. The message we get both in school and in the media is that we are not equipped to tell our own stories. And that is... Bullshit. Yeah. Finishing each other's sentences. <laughs> it's complete steaming bullshit because we... And, and I think that Jesse might probably say the same thing. You know what? No, I don't want to say that. I don't want to put words in her mouth. Um, but uh, but uh, it is true that, um, it, like you were saying, you want to see yourself reflected in your art. That's a lot of times I think that's why people, especially marginalized people, put work out there is because they don't see themselves. We don't see ourselves represented in media at large, and we want to kind of force our way in there. Yeah, and if if no one else is doing it right i'll do it myself that's the thing we just yeah. gotta it's probably why i wasn't out in school but but i think maybe subconsciously it's probably why i drifted away from being an actor because when you're an actor people specifically tell you you can't tell your own stories you have to be um you have to devote yourself entirely to the text and if the text has a bias towards white cis men then you can only see yourself reflected in it so much. And so to put yourself out there, to put your voice out there is a healing thing for your community. And I think it's a great thing about this podcast because you're putting yourself out there. And by doing that, it's healing. And by white cis men, you mean people who were assigned male at birth and still identify as men, for those who don't know what cis means. Mm -hmm. It's short for cisgender. Yeah. I, yeah, I was also an actor and I did it for two it was in an acting studio for two years that is very traditional in aspects of like if you imagine an acting school it's what my classes were like we wore all black we roll around on the floors we have feelings we have teachers telling us we're nothing um and then after two years of teachers telling me that I was nothing I went away I went to a study abroad program where it was very very different and I had a moment where I realized like why am I so sad and why do I feel so empty? And I realized it had be been because for two years I had been in a learning environment where the goal was to be empty and to be nothing and to be mutable and to be fillable with the text and with someone else's character and with someone else's words and someone else's ideas. And I had no idea who I was, no idea who I was. And I didn't like the person that I was because I wasn't anyone. And some people really thrived in that environment and I know some people who are doing incredibly well and who are very talented and I think that I gained a lot of technical skills from that time but ultimately it was very very bad for my mental health mm -hmm. because I wasn't grounded I didn't know who I was and and I I hated myself so much mm -hmm. because I wasn't this like because I wasn't a girl right and I was still identifying as a woman at the time I wasn't I, I was identifying as straight which I super wasn't and pushing myself into those corners was, was I would lash out and not really understand wh why and, 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 you know, behave badly because I needed a release. I needed something to, to let myself be the, like, incredibly weird person that I am. Like, the incredibly 
quirky and strange and talk with my hands gremlin than I am. And I was never given space to do that in a traditional acting school environment. Yeah. I think that we have to create, especially that's the beauty of being adults, is that we can suddenly take a moment to see we are not children and we have the power suddenly to create the own, our own environments, however mm -hmm. we want those to be. And I think it takes a certain level of boldness to get over those hurdles to put yourself out there despite any odds, despite any feedback you might get. It is incredibly scary to put yourself out there mm -hmm. and to, and I'm not speaking coming from you guys. <laughs> no, it is scary. At all. Yeah. But I think that the hurdle is kind of a, a, a universal feeling, whatever we're trying to get over. We all have different hurdles, but if we, there's something deep that we are afraid of in terms of our identity and jumping over that, even just tiptoeing into it to begin with. But the payoff from that, from being more honest with ourselves, is that's and that's when the art happens. That's when the art starts to spark, and you and you start to see everything that you guys can possibly make. And you seem to be making it with this podcast. The perspective has a place to go. Mm -hmm. And if I wanted to be palatable to a mass audience who would understand me, and and I would not be making radio drama yeah the vast majority of people i'm like oh i'm making a radio drama podcast i they look at me like i have two heads um and i think at a certain point i was just like you know theater i'm trying to make myself palatable as an artist as a theater maker as a designer marketable marketable and at a certain point i was like this is just exhausting i mean i'm sure you know this like oh, trying yeah. to trying to make yourself into something that can be made on an assembly line just saps all the artistic energy out of you you literally have no spoons left over to make the thing that you want to make and now that i'm trying not to do that i think now that neither of us are trying to do that both in our personal life and in our artistic life we just have more drive we have more energy we have more to say we have more to do and it's inspiring. And that's why I've loved listening to this podcast, because it feels like, um, from what I've heard you say, you are embracing that as well, where you're just like, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to put my stuff out there. And it becomes so much easier and so much more fun and engaging to make art because you're not spending all this energy wondering what other people will think. And I think that what ends up happening is that when you take up space as who you are, you end up inspiring other people and giving them permission to do so themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, if someone can see, like, we're on a radio list serve and someone posted on it and was like, we're a brand new trans podcast all about trans stuff. And I was like, oh, cool. Someone's posting about trans stuff on here. I'm going to post about our trans stuff, right? Like, so that's a very tiny example of just like someone steps a toe out and then suddenly the people come, you know, people who need it, find it. Right. And it's really beautiful how it works that way. Because podcasting is a niche and trans podcasting is a niche within a niche. <laughs> and sci-fi trans podcasting is a niche within a niche within a niche. Nicheception. It is nicheception. Nicheception. Yeah. That's kind of a cool name. <laughs> but I think that, I mean, I think we're all niches and I think we're all kidding ourselves if we're not 
anybody, whether you're creating art or not, we're all kind of weird. And um, I love how that keeps going on. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool. But, um, and I, you know what? It's totally my mom. And she's an artist too, by the way. I oh, grew cool. up in an artistic household. That. Yeah. So at some point, I would love to have my mom and have a conversation with her yeah, about being over 60 and still making your living as an artist. Um, I would listen to that, yeah. Yeah, because I think that's another thing. Ageism um, in this day and age, especially, um, I think it's really hard to be an artist and be older as well. But um, in general, I think that we, we can see everything in niches in a lot of ways because we, we can find our own set communities. I want to build, I want this t podcast to be a very broad community for all of the all of the niches and all of the stories because I think what I see in all of it is something that's the same. Mm -hmm. I see something that's the same in all of it is that people who felt a little lost or have a are just driven and compelled to create art from whatever land, walk of life they came from, whether it was from money, whether it was they never did it before and suddenly at 45 they want to start something that they always wanted whatever it is, it seems to come from a si similar place and a similar sense of just anxiety <laughs> that just has to be released. It's just eventually you just can't deny it anymore and, and you just have to be yourself. I wish we had a more positive... Oh, okay. <laughs> Should we take a break? Should we? We can totally take a break. Okay. Are we going on? Are we, are we running our mouths for too long? This has gone on for so long. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I wanted I wanted to open up for as long as we as everybody felt comfortable. Okay, yeah. So if you guys wanted I'm, to I mean continue, we're going in like 20 minutes, so. Um if we wanted to pause, I was getting to certain points where I was like, "Oh, we want to wrap it up. I'm going to open it up, but then we would come into another. Is that okay? I yeah. didn't mean to Okay, I didn't yeah. mean to monopolize that. No, absolutely not. I mean, I'm kind of probably looking at maybe a 2-hour max. Okay. But I mean, we're at an yeah. hour and a half. Well, anyway. we only have 20 more minutes here. Exactly. So, so I wanted to to just take advantage of yeah. the time that you guys have. It's, it's funny that anxiety keeps coming up in this conversation, though. I never identified myself as somebody with anxiety um, because I've always been afraid of identifying myself as anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I was always afraid it was going to put me in a group. And every time I put myself in a group, I became incredibly anxious and didn't think I fed in. Yeah. No matter what group I was ever in, I was just like, ah. So I was like, you know what? That's why it became Tizzy Wire because I didn't know what else to call me. I'm just in the going crazy trying to figure that out. Right. So that's why it didn't become artist wire or any, you know, artist net or whatever we want to call it this, these days. <laughs> I wanted it to be, I didn't even know what I was creating when I started the podcast. I didn't even know what it was going to be. I just needed to start talking because I knew it was going to take me forever to put my art out there. And I realized, and I'm slowly realizing that I don't know anything about anything even myself and I'm just going to accept that and the thing that I like about this podcast more than I even get from my art is that there is not an end point with it it's not a project that has a start and an end there's not any it's just an ongoing evolution and I feel like that's the one time in my life that I can commit to something because I know it doesn't end. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. N yeah. I don't know anything. None of us know anything. Let's just do it. Let's just right. do the thing. Do what we have to do. The only end is dying, right? That's the end. What's a more... Because this, this, it all feels very anxious, you know? It's motivated by 
the fear of dying or the fear of not being yourself, whatever it is. I'm scared of dying. But, I just well, know it's going to happen. But I wish we had a more positive word for anxiety because it is something where if you see something happening that you don't want to happen, you have, it, you have it within yourself to change that thing. And if you're anxious about it, you can recognize it and do something about it as opposed to people who are like, whatever, everything's going to be fine. Then you're not motivated to make the change that you want to see. Yeah. What, I don't know. What is that word? A good word for anxiety. Foresight? Maybe. I, there's, uh, there's an essayist named David Rakoff who I love, who has a book called Half Empty, which is all about de- um, defensive pessimism. Interesting. The idea being um, optimism can very easily lead you into complacency. And if you have a pessimistic outlook, then you're ready when bad things happen. And you are setting yourself up to change the world so that it doesn't turn into what you're seeing. And I think I draw a distinction between pessimism and cynicism. I like to think a world where is not going to be a cynical show because the point is not, you know, and if I have one criticism of Black Mirror, it's that I feel like it's a cynical show. Like the idea of the show is everything sucks. Technology is going to make everything suck worse. That's all we have. Mm -hmm. And Maybe a world where we'll fall into that trap, but I like to think that it the message is things don't have to be this way. This might be the direction we're going, which is why it would be pessimistic. You know, we're we're anticipating this, but there is room for change, there is room for growth, there is room for kindness and generosity and the word that you keep using that I love so much, which is community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think that whatever art we are expressing, whether we like it or whether we don't, I I think the fact that we have the freedom to be able to express it and foster it in other people creates a reciprocation and and respect on the other side, which that's what I want to have in the artistic community because so many people are closeted about their artistic selves because they're not they don't want to, they don't think they'll be ex- accepted by the larger landscape mm-hmm. and every time i meet somebody who just completely surprises me by the fact that they have this whole other side to them that's artistic and i'm like i want to make my life about helping people feel like they can put that out there i think yeah i think I, that's a no <laughs> um almost just knocked my water bottle over again it's very loud um i think that part of it also the reason that people feel like that hidden or secondary self is that this idea that we have about like the artist right and the the starving artist and there's this idea of what an artist is and I think that people feel like they are not legitimate artists if they don't fit into that exact thing like you cannot be a legitimate artist if you also have a day job that supports you and I think it's a really unhelpful stereotype I mean I just that is kind of an overused term but I just think it's 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 unhelpful to continue the narrative that an artist is one thing ever I think it is very very vague and very open and the nature of artistry is self-defined and I think if we give people permission to define their own artistry and and use the bits of it that they need to in a much more unstructured way that there's way more freedom and suddenly we have way more artists and suddenly we have way more people who feel valid in in who they are and in what they can contribute even because 
I don't identify as an artist really. Like I, I don't feel very creative or artistic. I'm a very logistical person, but I have that, that is my creativity. And that is my talent is, is these tiny nitpicky things and like getting into the cracks of things and, and really, really finding the essence of something and pulling it out. And, and people wouldn't call that artistry. That's not painting a picture. That's not writing a song, but you need it to make the art that we're making. Like we couldn't make the radio drama if I wasn't in the cracks figuring out what they are. I think that that's such an interesting perspective because and it's something that I didn't initially think about as I was pulling this together. I was thinking more about an individuals and the expression that they want to bring. But that's a good point that you do need to have that other side of it that makes the art happen. And I think that that's, that might be a whole other thing that I might want to talk about because I can think of a, a couple other people I know that are out there helping art happen but aren't mm -hmm. exactly making art themselves. Mm -hmm. Some of them I always wonder, I have a question mark, are they closeted artists? I don't know. I want to yeah. know what they're about. Yeah. But from what you're saying is that you don't see yourself as an artist at all. You see yourself as somebody t almost taking art to the next level, fostering yeah. it, enhancing it. And it's also what I do for my day job, actually, because I yeah. work in production offices. Um, so I sp I'm a production secretary, so I spend 60 hours a week writing out purchase orders for cranes and cameras and food. Most of my job is feeding people so that all of these like intense creative minds can sit in a room and figure out the minutiae and the beauty and the tone of this massive, beautiful project. But if they're not eating, mm -hmm. you know, they're not going to be able to do it. That being said, I don't love my job all the time and I don't want to do it forever because my like weird talent is logistics. I don't want it to be my day job in a way. So I'm not trying to stay here forever, but you have to have someone writing the purchase orders and getting breakfast yeah. always. It's not going to happen otherwise. Yeah. So where do you see, I mean, as far as taking things to the next level, we know that a world where is the project, but, but for you, what, what would you, where do you see your curiosity? I want, like following your curiosity, where is that leaning you towards? I would really like to have the means and the clout to pick out the people I see who are incredibly talented and who have stories to tell and support those people and lift them up either as a producer or a director. Um, but m the most satisfying work that I could do in my life is I really want to have like a three-story brownstone with a black box and a recording <laughs> studio and a big yard and a bunch of couches and an artist space and a painting room. And just, I just want to be able to have all of my friends on a universal basis of income that I could provide so they can just make stuff all the time and then it can be out in the world. Like that is what I want with my life. Yeah. And I think my... As you might expect, my goals are a little more idealistic and less. I don't know. That's pretty idealistic yeah. to me. <laughs> totally uh, achievable. It's the, it's what Janelle Monae does right now with sure. Wonderland. If you look at the model of Janelle Monae and Wonderland Records, it's exactly what she's doing. But I want to cool. do it with more than just music. Yeah. But I think what I my dream, my big lofty dream, is that radio drama, audio storytelling, is something I care about very deeply. And at least from the fictional side, it's a form that really hasn't grown necessarily in like 30 40 years up until the past couple years it started growing again mm -hmm. but it it stagnated for a long time since kind of the golden age waned 
And what I would like to do, if I could follow my curiosity somewhere, it would be to advance the form, to um, to to popularize a new technique, a new way of experiencing a story just through audio that is different, that has its own specific identity, that is not film, it's not journalism, it's not, you know, an audiobook. It is its own thing that when you say radio drama 10, 15, 20 years in the future, I want to be able to say, hey, are you listening to radio drama? And people will be like, oh, yeah, I have all these radio dramas that I love. Mm -hmm. And... I think that's achievable. It's ha it happened with nonfiction podcasts. It's happened with TV. I mean, TV, even 20 years ago, people were like, oh, it's the idiot box. Now it's a way of telling novelistic storytelling. I think mediums can grow and change. And if I could do something with my curiosity, I hope it would be to make other people curious about what radio drama and audio storytelling can achieve. Yeah. I think, I mean, there's so, I, I could talk about this stuff forever yeah, same. in so many ways. Um, but I know that you guys have like other engagements. Yeah, we got to like go was such in a, I feel minutes. like that was such a good end point. Yeah. So um, I really appreciate you guys taking the time to be on the podcast and really just have a, a very dynamic conversation. I think yeah. we covered all sorts of different things same and um, good luck editing this down, man. <laughs> I bet, you know what? That is, that is part of the. That is part of the technical, yet the artistic yeah. component. It's your job. Well, it's just very, well, it's very exciting because also, like, the editor has so much power in telling the story of this very yeah. conversation. Exactly. And I feel, I want, I don't like to edit these things down too much. Um, I might cut it, some of it for time, but I really want the conversation to speak for itself because we are natural conversationalists I feel like some of that has gotten lost in the social media age I know we want we're gonna we were hoping to talk about that oh, we never yeah. really got into That's it okay. but um, I want the evolution of the dialogue to be part of this podcast because it shows just how the the brain is thinking and how the connections for your personal perspective and experience and feelings influences the art and the art and the making of the art is is almost the part that's universal. The fact whatever drives you to, to create the art is very unique to the person. But how you kind of get to that art and, and how you make it happen and the struggles and the pain that you go through to make it happen, I feel like that's the thing that everybody connects on. And I want I want to always bring it back to that so that as everybody's listening, they might hear a new perspective, they might hear a different way of thinking of things but the value that everybody understands as artists is the work that's involved and how we bring our own passions into it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank this was fantastic. Thank yeah. you for thank listening you so to us. Thank you for yeah. coming. Yeah. Out thank you for to talking to us. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no any absolutely anytime. We awesome. Do this. this was great. Well, only on weekends really, but any weekend. Uh, sure. <laughs> anytime for me cuz I'm unemployed right now. But hopefully that will change. Yeah. Anyone's hiring. Let us know. Now, we all go through ups and downs. I mean, yeah. yeah I'm sure Jeff Jeff thing. Bezos is really going to want to hire me after this podcast. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, I appreciate you guys being here and for taking the time to listen to me. I'm going to be signing off this episode, episode eight. I'm going to be 
loading this up. I don't know if it's going to be this week, but it'll probably be next week. Okay. But I'll do the best that I can. I'm going to have so much fun listening back to this. Yeah. And everybody go to aworldware.com. You can listen to the first episode and the season one trailer now. Full season is coming up sometime around September 20th. We would be deeply grateful if you could subscribe and rate the podcast. It makes a huge difference early on. And you can also follow us on social media at WorldWearPod. Absolutely. I can't wait to hear the next evolution and binge listen to the whole thing because yeah. I'm constantly multitasking. Good luck. So I know. I'm excited. It's oh. going gonna, gonna to be pretty messed up. Gonna, <laughs> that's the only thing we can promise is that you're going to be super uncomfortable. Well, yeah. that's the stuff I love. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for listening, everybody out there listening to the Tizzy Wire podcast. If you want to know more about the work of a world where and Ani and HK's next evolutions, um, you can go to the Tizzy Wire website. I'm going to be showing some of the stuff that they're doing there, have links to all of their work. And as always... Take care, y'all. You've been listening to the Tizzy Wire podcast. New episodes out weekly. You can find out more about us or the artists that have been on the show at tizzywire.com or you can reach out via social media at Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at all of the tizzywire handles or you can reach out to us via email at tizzywire at gmail.com if you want to be on the show or have any questions about the show. Anyway, thank you so much and I hope you tune in next week.